Okay, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. And this is sort of a part two of a three-part, it's broken up by chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Paul uh, is doing a lot of writing around the theme of how do Christians navigate those gray areas of life, those morally neutral areas of life, where there aren't clear instructions of how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do. And the way that presents itself most acutely to the Christians in the first century is, can we, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Can we go to the market and buy meat, the only place you can buy meat? And in, in Corinth, the only the kind of meat that you can buy is that which earlier in the day was sacrificed as part of temple worship to an idol. And they say, and Paul says, can you? Yeah, you can. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's not like the idols are real. They're, they're not like, they don't corrupt the meat. Nothing actually happens. But then the question of should you though? And Paul says, well, that depends, right? Instead of giving a pat answer, yes or no, he begins in chapter 8, and it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 10, giving them an understanding of what it means to think Christianly through these issues that don't always have an obvious right, obvious wrong answer. And that might be challenging for us because some of us like just clear answers. Yes or no, Paul? Meat sacrifice to idols, what is it? Well, it depends. There's a number of factors that have to go into it. Now, again, you can see the temptation that might be there for Paul with these Christians in this church that are really experiencing a lot of chaos, right? You could say, you know what? I'm going to adopt the position of pure separatism. Anything that's been touched by anything that is worldly and not explicitly Christian, drop it. Don't hang out with non-Christian friends. Don't eat meat unless it's been, um, unless it comes from a Christian butcher and from like a field to table has never touched uh, an idolater's hands, you know, and, and this is part of the appeal of cults, right? Cults will often do this. They have a separatist mentality, and people are attracted to that in some ways because it's clear. What do I do in this situation? You do exactly this. How do I dress in this situation? You dress exactly like this. Use these words. You believe these things, and everything is spelled out for you, and then people can reject that and go in a different direction where they say, well, we're free in Christ. We're forgiven. We're liberated in Christ to live um, before God in freedom. And that freedom means that basically everything's on the table. And we can just enjoy things and praise God, everything's awesome. There's kind of no constraints. There's no boundaries. Pure indulgence. And Paul says, no, it's actually a lot of the Christian life is in between. It's about discerning, is this something wise, good, helpful, constructive for me to do? And he's going to spell that out explicitly in chapter 10. So what we're talking about is really under the umbrella of how do we as Christians engage those gray areas of life? And chapters 8 and 9 and 10 work through this question carefully, and they provide a really fascinating and empowering flexibility that allows Christians to live differently in these gray areas, and that allows the gospel to spread, and that's part of what Paul's um, celebrating in chapter 9 here. Paul says, yep, you might have the right to do, to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Because in chapter 8, there was a group of Corinthians that are like, Paul, we're free in Christ. These idols aren't real. We should be able to eat. No problem. And Paul's like, well, that's true. But just because you have the right to do something 
doesn't mean you should do it. But that was controversial for some Corinthians because some Stoics, uh, Greek philosophers, and Greek, uh, Greco-Roman cynics, they lived as they pleased. They said one of the highest forms of enlightenment is to not actually care what other people think, right? You do you. You do what makes you happy. Uh, live your best life. If the opinions of other people shouldn't matter to you. One of the ways you understand, they would argue, you've reached spiritual enlightenment is that um, there's a there's a healthy complete disregard for how your behavior impacts other people you just live for your own priorities and paul says no you do have a right as a christian to do many things but you have to use those rights thoughtfully and lovingly because whether or not you want to admit it or not your actions influence other people my actions as a pastor, whether I want to admit it or not, on Sunday, through the week, on social media, they influence people. Your actions at school, at your workplace, on social media, in your family, they influence people. And Paul says, if your reflexive reaction is someone saying, are you sure you should do that? Absolutely, I'm sure. I have a right to do that. Paul says, you're not understanding the rights that you have as a Christian. It should always be tempered by Am I using this in a way that actually helps both myself and other people? Just because you can do something as a Christian does not mean you should. And there's a healthy tension there that says we are free in Christ, but we've also been placed within families, communities, churches, and we do have to be sensitized to how our behavior and how we use our freedom so we don't provide obstacles to other people who want to be growing strong in their faith. Sometimes we should say no to things that we're actually entitled to, especially if it will safeguard the faith of other believers. And that's what Paul talks about in chapter 8. So I'm going to give you an overview of chapter 9. I'll be jumping into parts of it, but I want to give you an overview of Paul's argument here. We're going to go through this whole chapter. So in verses 1 to 6, Paul is going to say, okay, let's talk about rights. Let me tell you how I use my rights. So he starts by saying, am I not free? Yes, you are, Paul. You're free. Am I not an apostle? Oh, yeah, you're like Corinthians thought hierarchically, right? Like, like there's like the Trinitarian Godhead, and then there's like God's apostles and prophets. And Paul's like, I'm, a, I'm an apostle, right? Yeah, okay, I have authority. I, I've seen Jesus. I've planted you as a church. And then he says, don't I have the right of your support? Don't I have the right to claim a portion of the offering for myself? This is my job. Don't I have the right to that? And the answer is, yes, you do. And that's when he's backing them into a corner to say, like, yeah, you do have that right. And then he says, listen, in verse 7, he says, when you serve as a soldier, do you pay the Canadian government to serve? No, they pay you. Um, what about when... Um, what about if you are uh, a vineyard owner? Like, do you get a share of the crop, the harvest? Yeah. What if you're a shepherd? Do you get to drink the milk from the flock that you protect and keep healthy and safe? Yeah, you do. And he says, even in Scripture, it says, when, an, when your animal, an ox, is, is, is treading the grain, you allow it to eat some of that grain so that it can stay strong. So when you labor, you should be paid for your labor. 
So he's saying justification A from Scripture, a soldier, a farmer, a shepherd, they have the right to payment. I have the right to payment. But look what he says in verse 12. But we didn't use this right. I didn't use this right. I could have, but I didn't. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the, hinder the gospel of Christ. He said, you guys live in a culture, in a Corinthian culture, where lots of itinerant preachers come around and they're charged for you to sit in their seminars and sit in their workshops and they charge exorbitant fees. And he said, could I have done that? Absolutely. Would it have been sinful? Nope. I have every entitlement to it. But I decided not to because I didn't want anybody to say, oh, Paul's just planting this church. This is like a new grift he's doing. He's just patterning his ministry off of all these other um, traveling philosophers who charge for their work. Then he goes in again, does the same thing, says, I could have used my rights. I'm justified in it. He says, listen, when you served in the temple in the Old Testament, when you were a priest, didn't you get some of the bread? And then you, then you passed it on to others. Like you were allowed to feed. You were allowed to be supported. That was a right that you had as a priest. And they're kind of like, yeah, that's true. But then in verse 15 to 18, he says that I have not used those rights. I never once demanded support from you, financial or material. He says, when I preach the gospel, verse 16, I don't boast. I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. He says in verse 18, what's my reward? Just this, that when I preach the gospel, I can offer it free of charge and not make use of my full rights. So he's saying, look at my example. Anybody, I have the right to say, I'm entitled to this as a Christian, and I'm extra entitled to this as an apostle. He puts his life on the line to plant churches. But he says, I didn't see my rights as an entitlement. Instead, I said, what will be most helpful for this Corinthian church? What will be the best witness to non-believers around us? How do I establish myself as someone who's trustworthy? And now I go in that direction. So I work through this issue of can you charge people for preaching the gospel? Yes, you can. But should you in Corinth, planting a church, getting established as it's no. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'll become a tent maker. I'll work on the side to alleviate the financial burden and to make sure no one in this community can say, oh, I know why Paul's doing this. This is a money-making scheme. No, the guy takes nothing. And he works extra hours to support himself. Oh, wow, that's, that's unusual. Maybe he actually believes this Jesus stuff. Paul says, I'm perfectly free. I am entitled to payment, but I don't use that right in order to provide a stronger witness to other people. Right? Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And Paul is also sending a very strong signal to the Corinthian believers that the most, what they would think of as spiritually mature, Paul has a title, he's an apostle, he's a uh, um, a capital M messenger. He is a capital S sent one by Jesus himself. The most spiritual people do not live by the principle, well, I just do what I want. I have the right to do what I want. And if you have a problem with that, well, I'll deal with it. Paul says, no, I live by the principles. I'm free to lead by example. 
so that the maximum amount of people are encouraged and built up, and my life becomes evidence of God's grace. And so then in verses um, 19 and 23, he says, this is how I use my freedom. I don't even think of myself as free. I think of myself as having gone from a slave to sin, and now I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a slave to righteousness. And then he says, so to the Jew, I became like a Jew. And to those under the law, I became like those um, under the law. To those who have no law, like the Gentiles, I became like one to them. To the weak, I became weak to, to win them. And he keeps saying this term, to win them. In these contexts, I leaned into the flexibility that the gospel allows. And I didn't just say, here I am, here's how I do things, it's my right before anyone makes up an argument, now you serve me. He said, I have been free to serve these communities. So do I have a right to eat bacon when I'm with fellow Jewish believers? Yep. But I don't throw it in their face like, wow, must must suck not to be free in Christ to eat bacon. He's like, I just abstain. I take on the cultural, and, and when, it, when I'm with Gentiles, again, he doesn't say that I'm doing, I'm entering into the Gentile unbelieving lifestyle. But he's saying, when I'm eating with Gentiles, they offer me meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. I'm not like, oh no, I don't, I don't touch anything that's corrupted by uh, uh, dirty, filthy pagans. He's like, thank you very much. Praise God for this meat. It's wonderful to be in this household with you. To the weak, Paul doesn't show up. To those who are grieving, to those who are brokenhearted, he doesn't show up like a motivational speaker. He has a right to. I'm strong, I'm confident in Christ. The resurrection power of Jesus is in and through me. I'm an apostle. I don't say, snap out of it, let's go, put your faith in Christ. I come in weakness. Why? Because I'm there to serve. And it's not about being manipulative or being like a social chameleon. It's about realizing the context and saying, okay, talking to someone, let's say evangelizing someone in the Kootenays is going to have a slightly different nuance than evangelizing someone in a major urban center like Vancouver or New York City. Talking to a high school student and engaging them, or a junior high student, is going to look a little bit different. You know, when I'm here on Sunday, I speak to the community. But, you know, when, um, when I'm at junior high, I kind of make myself a junior higher. And I speak and exude that kind of energy, not to manipulate them, but to serve them. To make sure they understand this group is about them making sure I communicate the gospel in ways that are clear and helpful to them. And so Paul is saying, you have to learn as a Christian in the gray areas to think through what's your role. Yes, you have rights and entitlements, but are you actually using those and leveraging that to bless and serve other people? We should always avoid what God says to avoid. Paul is not saying here, oh, to the thief I became a thief. To the adulterer I became like an adulterer. He's not saying that. He's just saying to those with a certain cultural background, I want to be sensitive. Or in walking through certain stages uh, of, let's say, acute grief, 
or if you're talking to a football team, right? You're going to say, hey, how do I present analogies um, that speak to these individuals? So this isn't about, you know, everything is gray and there's no right or wrong. God makes things very clear that are wrong. And then the things that he makes clear that are right are often not really specific. They're broad. Love your neighbors yourself. Lift up each other's burdens. Care for one another. Wash the feet. Um, encourage one another. So I love that when God, when the things that really damage our relationship with God damage our relationship with ourselves and with other people, God makes it very specific. Thou shalt not. But in the stuff that we're called to use our freedom to bless other people, God leaves it open for creative cooperation. Because God's trusting you to know you know your neighbor, like literally the person who lives beside you or with you in your home, you know them better than you do. What would be a blessing? That's why God doesn't say, bless people, and it has to look exactly like this. God says, you're creative. I trust you. I've given you gifts. Use who you are. Use your freedom to bless your church, to bless your family, to bless your sports team, to bless your grandkids. And that's part of the adventure of being a Christian, is using our freedom to serve. And that's why Paul goes to this athletic metaphor where he talks about, you know, don't you know that if you run a race, only one person wins, so you should run to win. And he says, if you're training for a boxing match, like don't train aimlessly where you're boxing the air. And we might think, I don't quite understand how that connects. What he's saying is, you have freedom in Christ. But your freedom, you have been liberated from sin to pursue the good and the noble and the right and the true. You're not free from sin to then say, oh, now I'm just going to live however I want. No, you've been rescued and now you've been put in a race. And you should have a healthy kingdom ambition that says, I'm going to try and win this race. I'm going to try and maximally please God and bless other people. So that means you're going to have to limit your own freedom. Because if you are running a marathon race and you actually don't just want to finish, but you actually over the course of the race, want to gain ground, or you're training for that race, or you're training to go into the ring, what are you going to have to do? What ways are you going to have to limit your entitlements and freedoms? What are you going to have to say no to? Eating chocolate cake. You're going to have to say no to eating whatever you want whenever the impulse comes up in you. What else are you going to have to say no to? Working too hard. You're going to have to learn how to maximize performance engagement and then maximize rest. You are not going to be able to just do this mushy middle and kind of vegging, but not really, not really resting. I'm not really at, you're going to have to get really clear on what gives your body rest. What are you going to have to say no to? What else? What? Spending. You're going to have to invest in certain things to make you stronger nutritionally, training-wise, and that means you're saying yes to this and no to this. You can't do it all. You've got to be focused. What, maybe one more thing that you're saying no to. Well, you're certainly saying no to a lot of um, flexibility in your schedule. Because if you've ever met a high-level athlete, if you want to connect with them, you have to plan weeks or months in advance. Because they're like, well, this is what I do on these evenings and this is my commitment. They just don't have the margins. They don't have the kind of the easy going, like, oh, sure, you want to do something this Saturday? No problem. Like, just, yeah, well, I'm free. 
They are booked because they are focused. And Paul is saying here, that's what it means to live as a Christian. It's not Jesus has set me free to do whatever I want, and I'll just kind of meander through life. He's, I mean, there's a part of the heart there, you'll see it in chapter 10, where he's like, why would you even want to live like that? Christ has set us free to run, to live in a way that's passionate and exciting and that has this dynamic of engagement and rest and drawing from God and being with God and then doing for God and going on this adventure of learning what it means to love and care and grow with people. And here's the big application, I think, is that to a Corinthian church who says, some of them, who say, oh, what I love about being a Christian is that Jesus sets me free from the power and penalty of sin and now I don't have any constraints. I get to just live how I want. Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus doesn't free us from constraints. He frees us to the constraints that help us nurture the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And that's very different, right? Freedom in Christ isn't a free-for-all. Oh, just do whatever you want. You're forgiven now. Heaven's, you're sure to heaven, so between now and then, you do you. Live your best life. Do what makes you happy. No. Freedom in Christ is you are now being freed for the benefit of all. Not a free-for-all, but you are now free-for-all. And Jesus is going to place constraints in your life so that you begin to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. You begin to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And the last one, and this is important for the Corinthians, self-control. But I have the right to... This is where you have to exercise self-control. Will doing that thing actually benefit you? Will it benefit the faith of those around you? Will it actually bless God? Then pursue those things. That's why Paul... Um, well, let me show you a quote. Uh, this is from Wayne Dyer. He's kind of a pretty famous uh, New Age person. Uh, freedom means you are unobstructed from living your life. As you choose, anything less is a form of slavery. I mean, that's the stuff you're going to that's the stuff you're going to find. And, and I've read, read enough Wayne Dyer. This is kind of his vibe in general. At first, that sounds liberating, but it's actually deeply self-absorbed and self-corrupted. And my experience has been people who live like this end up falling into a different kind of slavery. It's a slavery defined by self-absorption, and they, their, their life and world just actually becomes really, really small and not very dynamic. Freedom is not the absence of constraints. That's garbage. Freedom is finding the right constraints. And Jesus leads you into those constraints. The constraints, let's say at a big level, prayer, gathering with other Christians, confession, repentance. These are constraints. These are things that you have to do. Just like a runner who says, well, what do I need to train? Well, for some runners, they have to like run to train. But for you, no, you don't have to. It's like, no, if you are a runner, there are things that universally apply. If you are a Christian, you want to grow. There are things that universally apply. You have to be engaged in a church. You want to be praying. You want to be learning and growing and deepening your engagement with the word. You want to be cultivating life-giving relationships. You want to be serving. But that means to do all those things, you're not maximally free. 
We don't get to live however we want, but if we trust Jesus and submit to him, what we find is as we move into being a slave to him, we actually feel more solid, more grounded, more free. Even though people on the outs, I've had people on the outside of my life, does ever get tired like having to do all this stuff? You got to be at church every Sunday. You got to read the Bible. You got, and I'm like, you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on here, because you're seeing it as constraints that limit me for, from life. But it's more like Jesus has rescued me from being tone deaf, given me an ear for music, and is now making me practice the piano, so that in five or ten years I can play something. I could never have played 15 years ago. And other people at that 15 is going to say, wow, look at Jeff play. That's amazing. Yeah, it came because I was constrained to practice. I'm now free to play any musical instrument or play any piece on the piano, but I'm free because I was constrained. Right? Bobby Joe, Savea, vocalist, they're free to play these songs. They have a freedom I don't have. I'm not free. You do not want me getting up behind that piano. Right? You're like, you just sit down with your freedom, Pastor Jeff. That's what you guys want. I'm not free. They're free. Why? Because I didn't constrain myself. When I was a kid and when I was a teenager, I just want to do what I want to do. I want to do what's fun. I want to do what makes me happy. I took piano lessons for one year. It didn't make me happy. Now I'm enslaved. A whole area of life, unless I learn to play in the future, is blocked off from me. But they're free. That's what it means to be a Christian. We submit to the slavery, to the bondage of Jesus. He frees us from the bondage of sin and death to freedom. And now our lives become increasingly a more beautiful song that draws others to him. Freedom in Christ is not the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom in Christ is the ability to do what is good and noble and true and right. Jesus frees us to live for his glory and for others' good. And that's the best kind of constraints to live with. It really is life-giving. It's amazing. And this is why, especially if you've never heard this before, if your understanding of Jesus is, is not such that you've ever really recognized Oh, it's not just like beliefs. It's sort of like a relationship. It's a followership. Yes, it is. We follow Jesus' lead here. And this is where Paul's going to point to. He says in Philippians 2, he says, think about Jesus. If there was ever someone who said, I have all the rights, you have none. Whatever I say, you do. Because I am the second person of the Trinity. I am Lord and God. Paul says he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, and he took on human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But God the Father exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand only Jesus can set you free from the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. 
Only Jesus can set you free from the power of sin and then put you in the right constraints so that you flourish and grow into the character of God that manifests in greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Turn to Jesus. Stop avoiding him because you think he will constrain your life. Your life is already being constrained. You are enslaved to yourself. Jesus can release you into a bigger world as you come under his loving, gracious care.